Hey, Tourpreneurs, it's Mitch Bach. And just a quick note before we begin today's episode, Tourpreneur is currently sponsored by Google. We're thankful for their support of our community, and we are offering with them a completely free course helping you unlock the power and potential of Google's Things to Do program, which is specifically helping tour operators add their tours to Google in new ways that gives you new exposure and more direct bookings. To learn more, go to tourpreneur.com slash Google. And as always, show notes, more resources, links to our newsletter, our business coaching community, and so much more are available on tourpreneur.com. Now to the episode. Welcome to the Tourpreneur Podcast. Travel industry veteran Shane Whaley will take you on a journey with fellow tourpreneurs, sharing their tips, ideas, insights, and success stories to inspire you to make your tour business the best it can be. And now, here is your host, Shane Whaley. Hello and welcome to episode 108 of the Tourpreneur Podcast. I've often said on the show that one of the things I love about our industry is just the sheer breadth of it. Everything from kayak tours to food tours to walking tours to architecture tours, etc. And today's guest is offering something a little bit different. Now, today we're going to learn how Matthew Smith's passion to share vitally important life skills and the history of the SOE's epic operations. All right? So basically, the SOE, Special Operations Executive, very active during World War II, basically sabotage behind enemy lines. Now, you may not be someone who's into military history or adventure or endurance or survival. I get that. But I would urge you to stick with today's episode because you're going to learn how a very experienced military man has this idea of wanting to take people on seven-day-plus excursions to experience what it was like to go behind enemy lines and to bring many of us out of our comfortable lives and experience what it's like to be in some of these rough terrains. And in this conversation, we're joined by Peter Sign. Many of you know Peter, very, very experienced uh, when it comes to tours and uh, being a tourpreneur. And uh, we run the rule of a Matt's business idea, soeexpeditions.com, which the website is available now. They're taking bookings now. The first tours will launch next year. We talk about how he is set up, how is he going to market this, because it's a very uh, specific demographic. It's, it's niche. Um, we talk about the buyer's journey and lots of other stuff. And, and I'm just thrilled because Matt Smith, he joined the military in 1994, uh, he's passed airborne parachute selection, army commando selection, followed by six years with special forces. So I don't want to fight this guy and I don't want to go drinking with him <laughs> with this kind of background, right? Uh, seriously though, but I, and I love that he's taking that experience from being in the military and he wants to build experiences around that, okay? His website is seoexpeditions.com. Uh, settle back and enjoy this conversation with Peter Syme, Matt Smith, and myself. <laughs> Welcome to Tourpreneur episode 108, Matthew Smith and Peter Syme. How are you, gentlemen? Good. I'm good, mate. Nice to be here. Thanks. Hi, Shane. I'm all good. Fantastic. You've been working 18-hour days, right, Peter, out uh, in ground operations? Yeah, I'm back to being an operator as in doing the operations rather than talking nonsense and all the <laughs> other stuff I do. So now I'm back to driving, taking photographs, guiding, washing, basically dog's body of anything that needs done. Yeah. What's the reaction been like from your guests, from people booking your tours? I'd say 80 to 90% are not even mentioning anything to do with COVID. Uh, they're just desperate to get out and do stuff. And you've got to mind what we do. We're all adventurous type product. Therefore, the people who do it tend to be fairly adventurous. Uh, and then we have about maybe 5 to 10% that are asking some questions around uh, procedures, uh, safety, health from a COVID situation, but it's a lot less than what I was expecting it to be. Cool. Well, we've invited on the show today, Matthew Smith, who is the uh, top man at SOE Expeditions. <laughs> uh, really excited to hear about your story. So for those who aren't familiar with, with your company, what exactly do you do? What do you offer? So SOE Expeditions is, uh, has been a brainchild for a couple of years now. It's been in the back burner and it hasn't really 
come to fruition till now. So for the past eight years, every year I've been going to Norway and I've been uh, guiding and leading on the, the Heroes of Telemark, Telemark over the Hardanger Vida. And that's following the footsteps of the uh, the saboteurs who blew up the heavy water factory in Norway. And that was one of the most successful sabotage missions of World War II. Uh, from about 2008, I was lucky enough to meet some of the uh, saboteurs and they were still alive. Uh, Jonikum Ronenberg, when he passed away, I think it was just, uh, January last year, he was 99. A guy, guy was an absolute legend. Uh, and so all these guys were legends. And the, some of the stuff they were doing was just, you know, it's just they made movies about it. Um, and they're a dying breed, so I'd always wanted to do more of it. And I actually chatted to to Pete about it. And he's like, "You should make it." I remember we had that chat. Pete he says, "Make it a race or something like that." It was that was never really that event. You couldn't really do as a race on high numbers because it would dilute the product of it being, you know, being true to, and authentic to to what they've done. So that's always been a thing that you know companies do that. Um, I've been lucky to partner with Brian Desmond, who's ex-military, and he's been doing that for a lot longer than me. And, you know, after building that trust with him, he's, you know, allowed me to utilise his expertise and his contacts. Because in, in Norway, you, yeah, you can go and do it, but you'll be living in tents as opposed to living in the huts that the saboteurs lived in. And it's all family communes and, um, you know, you've got to know the right people. So finally, after... After nearly ten years, he's given me the green light, so that's good. Um, so I've, I've kind of that's the flagship event. But then I sat down with um, Mark Beaumont, who is obviously endurance athlete, been around the world twice on a bike in under eighty days. It's quite special. So the whole SOE is uh, basically a lot of these men and women were civilians who done extraordinary oh. things from an endurance and a kind of survival. Uh, and then I was thinking about, well, there's so many other areas of operations they worked in, i.e. Pyrenees, uh, Crete, Italy. And so how do we bring this all together? So so I sat down and I started looking at them and there's absolutely, there's, there's lots and lots. But it had to be the right ones that tied in with, you know, I'm all about the kind of the adventure and the survival side and he's about the endurance side and it's bringing that concept together. And I think people really, they, they want that. And it's, it's uh, hopefully it's going to work. There was a, a show on TV um, I watched on Netflix it was called Churchill's Secret Agents, where they took a group of civilians and, and trained them to be SOE. And it, I, I actually quite liked it, you know, because most reality stuff, it's all dramatized and people fighting each other. But this was actually pretty good. And what I liked about it is they, they weaved in a lot of history around the SOE and what those agents actually did. And I, I just watched that show and I had tremendous respect for all those SOE agents. I mean, to go through what they did. Just and that they were civilians, and you know they opted into this. Um, just an incredible bit of history that I I feel you know we weren't really taught that at school, to be honest. No, no, and um, that the education piece is massive. Um, so you know, being Scottish, SOE and Special Forces, they all trained all in around this area up in up in Scotland. Actually, where I live, just down the road in Ayrshire, there was an SAS camp that I found. I didn't know about that. So, you know, and it's stuff like, I live here and there's stuff people don't know about that I'm just finding out. And so I think, you know, that's really important, passing that on to your future generations. Oh, we're based at a Kulti Bragen camp, which is an old German World War II camp. And again, that's got its own history. And then just up the road, you got Aviemore with the Marines ch- uh, trained and SOE trained all over the all over the place. Interestingly, I, I watched that programme. It, really, it was really good. It was well done. Yeah, yeah, I, w- I was pleased with that. You've got in mind that people's perception of the military today versus what it was like in World War II when SEOE was working. I can normally spot an ex-military person instantly at the moment because they carry themselves a certain way, they, they talk a certain way, and you can just spot them. If I can spot them, so can other folks spot them, and that's not a good thing. Whereas and Churchill recognised that if he wanted people to blend in, they had to be unique individuals. And these unique individuals could be actors, they could be poets, they could be doctors, they could be anything basically but military. Uh, and the other skills, can, when you're in a survival situation like that, when it's do or, literally do or die, it's amazing how quickly people learn the other things they need to learn if they can just blend in using their, their skills. And if you're an actor, a creative person, someone in the creative uh, areas, on the whole, they blend in better than some hairy military guy. <laughs> that leads me to ask you a question there, Matt. So 
Who is your ideal customer? Who's booking your your tours, your experiences? Is it ex-military types? Is it adventure types? Or is it a wide range of people? Uh, it's a real wide range of people. I mean, I, I've done 22 years in the military. So for me, military guys are great. They're, they're, you know what you're getting. You know, they rock up on time. They're generally all fit guys. And they'll just book on mass because, you know, they can't be bothered jumping through the hoops of... Uh, red tape so I've just given them a product off the shelf and they book it and that's great you know um, but at the moment it's it's a new baby it's just launched and so we're finding like the kind of high end you know directors the guys that are looking after their cell they want to challenge their cell a little bit it's almost bragging rights in the office on a Monday morning um, and it's a cool thing to do so but again Another massive market is, you know, the, the women's market, females who are just, you know, they're up there as well and they want to do the exact same thing. It's why, why the guys get all the fun. And uh, I get a lot of that. Um, and I'm like, yeah, why not? SOE had lots of women and they actually the first allied person behind enemy lines was a female um, SOE agent who started uh, infiltrating the Germans before D-Day. Mm-hmm. So it's, uh, yeah. So to answer your question, military is great, but it's normally kind of people who want to challenge themselves. And so you've normally find it's a kind of older generation uh, or people have got a fascination in history and like the adventure expedition kind of out of their comfort zone a wee bit because it's not all, well, you'll know this with your thousand mile expeditions. It's um, can be quite punchy at times and the weather, you know, if you don't know what you're doing up there, you're, you're going to suffer. What's great about this, Shane, is for operators who are listening or new operators or people looking to open up, what Martin's team has done here is a great demonstration of designing something that's unique and different and not just looking at yet another tour operator doing exactly what's already out there, multiplied by 50 or 60 or 70, or in some cases, literally hundreds of operators all competing over the same thing. He's looked at the... The market has looked at what people really want to do. Uh, and I would just suggest that's been emphasized in this period we're in at the moment with COVID and can come up with a unique, different product that ties up history, culture, fitness, endurance. Uh, and it's different. It really is different. There's probably nothing like it elsewhere in the world. So when you come up with a product like that that matches the psychology of need that people have, and you come up with a really good quality product, uh, and I have no doubt this will be quality product, then it's just a marketing job behind it, and you're going to have success. I have absolutely no doubt this uh, this business will be a success, and it, and it's talk about it's a shareable experience. So when people do this, they're going to talk about it. They're not going to go back to their office on the Monday and keep their mouth shut. They're not going to keep their mouth shut on social media. They're going to share the experience they had. Therefore, it comes with an inbuilt flywheel of remarketing because it's an experience that people will talk about and remember for quite a long time, if not with their life. Fancy coming on a course, mate, do you? Like, no. Fancy coming on one? No, I'm too old. <laughs> but you like the look of the creep one, Peter. Yeah, I, I, I do like it. I keep meaning to go and, I was going to say run across creep, but those days right. are long, long gone. Right. I keep I keep meaning to go to creep and walk across the White Mountains because I have done my background on on what happened there and, and during the, the Second World War. So... That is oh, one right. I would like to go on the creep one, but yeah, uh, no, it's body's, interesting. My body's falling apart, man. <laughs> I know, but yeah, remember you said to me once it's actually keeps you fit because you know you're back out the ground, and these are the things that you know keep you going because you love it. And that's what it's yeah. all about, isn't it? Do what you love. But um, yeah, when you were talking about the unique aspect, I mean, being in the military, you know, this part, a big part of that was going on battlefield tours, and it's literally you know get on a coach or a bus and you get off and you you wake up hungover at a beach somewhere and a guy's chatting to you about what happened and then you get back on the bus and you go. And there's no real, okay, it's informative and it's educational, but there's nothing there behind it substantial that's taking you to your comfort zone. Um, so not only does this these trips give you that, but we're trying to, well, we have with most of them, is tied in with someone who is a either a relative or a descendant of the, some of the famous people that are on the ground. Like So for Italy, you've got... Um, Major Gordon Lett, who was the SOE guy on the ground who has up to 400 partisans who punched a hole through the Gothic line, you know, and the Allies could never do that. They kept getting repulsed. Churchill called it the soft underbelly of uh, of Europe, but it, it was far from that. The, 
the Germans had their toughest mountain troops up all across that whole area. So Major Gordon let asked for a spearhead and he got uh, 33 SAS guys flew in. So between them and the, the SAS uh, Major, they, they basically punched through and they caused havoc within that area. Um, now, through our research, I've found um, Brian Lett, Major Gordon Lett's son, and he's going to come on our expedition. and he's going to tell about his father's exploits at the start and the beginning and stuff like that. It's like, that's mental. You know, it's like, uh, it's, I think that really adds to it. So if the trips that we're doing, we're trying to find that kind of unique, whether mm-hmm. it's an, uh, an author or a historian, uh, we've tied in with a few historians as well who have written books on it and, the, you know, it sells itself. So I think that's quite interesting as well. Um, it's a unique selling point. And that's why I'm going to share this. I, I do another podcast called Spybrary, which is about spy oh, books. Okay. We were actually just featured in Radio Times last week, which was very nice. Uh, we do fiction and nonfiction. So there's a lot of uh, people who are interested in the SOE who listen to our Spybrary show. So yeah. Have you done it with uh, Damien Lewis, who's keen to, to come on board? He's done a few books on SOE. Yes, he has. No, absolutely. No, I, that's one that we definitely recommend. How do you go about, because, you know, this is a certain type of person, right? This is not the walking tour in a city bike tour, you know, this is a certain kind of person. How are you going about marketing to that that segment? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good one, isn't it? I mean, it's quite niche. So I've found at the moment, because we've just started doing it, I'm relying on what I've done previous. So my, my old videos on Heroes of Telemark and, you know, other people sell it. So, you know, we've got Mark Beaumont. He's got a massive following. So his, his audience is a, is a it's a bit bigger than mine, so that's good. That's going to give us some traction. Um, I find LinkedIn really powerful. Like I've just made a couple of vids, and he's made a couple of vids, and it's so straight away you're tapping out that market of people who are either a CEOs or you know in a high end job, or whatever, and they're like, yeah, I fancy doing something different, and I find that powerful. And then I suppose it's like any new venture; it takes time, doesn't it? You got to market it, you got to grow it, and it's whether you're I'm going to events, or we're all going to events, and then it's word of mouth, and then it's targeted ads, and I don't really know if kind of OTAs would work with that because it's so bespoke. I don't, I don't know. What's your thoughts, Pete? I'm keen to get your uh, your ideas on this. No, for this sort of product, it's it's a similar product to my expedition business that I did have until COVID crashed this whole year. But we'll get back oh, to it. Uh, I don't actually think it is niche. Uh, the product you're delivering and the experience you're delivering is niche, mm-hmm. but the market isn't that niche because your market is... The psychology of customer going on this is a desire to do something that's different. So how many people are out there who have a desire to do something that's different? Literally millions. And as the world becomes more and more same-same and everybody goes to McDonald's and Starbucks and blah, blah, they want to do something different. So there's a huge desire out there. They look for something that's different. So something that's novel, again, the novelty we value. Now, I don't mean that disrespectively to the actual product. Uh, because obviously it's about history and people that die doing this stuff, but it is novel. It is so different. It is and it is a completely different product in the travel space. So if you've got desire and people are looking for novel product or experiences on mass, and then you add in a bit of fear and a bit of challenge, that market's no niche. That market is literally millions of people. So it's aligning your experiences in your product, understanding the psychology of the customers that have mm. the desire, they're looking for something that's different and they really like it if it's a bit of a challenge and it's going to scare them a wee bit. And you don't need to break them, but if it scares them a wee bit, it's it's all the better. People are people are not challenged in today's life anymore. And life has yeah. become too easy for so many people. And I know we're going through a bad time at the moment. Businesses are upside down and all the rest of it. But the reality is people are not really challenged these days. And if you set up a, an experience where they feel challenged and are genuinely challenged, you've got a customer for life. Yeah, I've found that as well through all the trips I've done and the experiences. It's only when you're you're really uncomfortable. You won't enjoy it at the time, but you'll look back and you'll go, do you know what? I got something for that. That was. You take the golden nuggets away, don't you? Yeah. Yeah, it's... Uh... In the endurance part of it, your partners, it's a, if I go back to my own thing, when I designed Thousand Mile Journeys, my thought process was I know the desires out there for people to do extraordinary challenges, but they don't feel able to. 
they want to, it's in their head, but they don't feel able to. And the reason they don't feel able to is because when they look at the media and they look at the films and it's like it's all rock stars and, and superb athletes and people doing things that are just out of the conception of the normal person or they need a high level of technical skill. So you have to get over them barriers that there's massive desire, but then for many people, the next reaction is, but I couldn't possibly do that. And that's a barrier you've got to go over. So when I was designing the expeditions, I went, well, can you walk? And they were saying, what do you mean, can I walk? I said, well, can you put one foot in front of the other? Ah, of course I can walk. Well, then you can walk a thousand miles in. Again, it's no <laughs> body arguing about it. Get signed up, give me your money, and we'll go. And it's as <laughs> simple as that. But if you show them a video of somebody falling off a rock face and cling, clinging on with his fingernails, they're not going to sign up because they have to do five years of training to get to that level to be able to do it. So it's. It's a case of making sure the clients are going to be challenged physically, mentally, and have a bit of fear in there. But you've also got to get across it as achievable for the person who has the desire and the want to do some different life. And just ordinary people in ordinary jobs and ordinary life are capable of much, much, much more than they realize. And it's your job and my job and other folk like us to make sure we put them in that position because they won't regret it. Yeah, no, 100%. I've got a good theory on that where it's almost like a, a swap and collect generations and how it's happened. I mean, when I, when I was a wee boy growing up, when we were wee boys growing up, I don't know, Shane, maybe you didn't do, maybe you didn't do this, I don't know, but, you know, running about and climbing trees and, you know, being outdoorsy, it was just, you know, it was a way of life. So as I get older, you know, my kids grow up, I'll probably want to, I'll probably will do more of that. But, you know, our parents wanted to go on a cruise ship and chill out on a beach. You know, because they've they've done all that, whereas now folk coming up, they're maybe not doing as much of that because there's so much technology. So now they're getting to a, a time in their life they're a wee bit older. They're looking after themselves. Maybe got a wee bit more expendable cash. Like, do you know what? I don't want to go on a boat and sit on a beach. I, I want to do something punchy. I want to do some. It's all about the experiential side, which I know you've chatted at length about this, Pete. But uh, and I think there's a real change, and I think there's going to be more and more of that, and I think that's exciting. Yeah, when these punters turn up for your, I call them punters, that's terrible, customers, guests, <laughs> when they turn up for your experiences, get the phones off them, take the bloody phones off them, hide them away. And one thing we started doing, and I'm going to really ramp this up once I get back to doing whatever we're going to do in the future, is we hire a lot of photographers, and I'm going to say to the clients, particularly in expeditions, you're just not doing photography in expeditions. There'll be a pro photographer coming along, taking the photographs, and you'll have complete access to all the photographs everywhere. But people, if they're so focused on social media and taking snapshots and taking selfies and all the other stuff that goes on and uploading, they're not actually experiencing what they're there to experience. And that I increasingly see, even in some of the remote places in the world where I'm traipsing around, just because the sun comes up at a certain bit or sets at a certain bit and you suddenly have all these thousands of people with, I'm going to try and get people away from that. and yeah. the way. They still, and, they, and of course, these things tend to be a once or a twice in a lifetime experience. Therefore, you want them to have memories. Therefore, you want them to have media and photography. But let's do it better than just a lot of people with bloody phones on sticks. Yeah, no, 100%. I totally agree with that. Um, we were on the video with a group. The Hardanga Vida is the highest plateau in Europe. And we're in this hut, and lo and behold, they got a signal. I don't know how they've done it, but they got a signal. And so we're in a remote little hut and the food burning stove's gone and you maybe got a wee bottle or something and you, you know, you're having a few drams and it's good chat and then all of a sudden, boop, boop, and everyone's got, it's like, oh, that just goes out the window and everyone's just engrossed in their phone and it's just, it just kills it, you know, and it's like, you, you lose the memory and the experience, you know. I think it's very difficult for people to have a digital detox these days. Especially, you know, for us running online businesses, I try one day a week, I try not to have my phone or be on my phone. And I, and I fail at that most weeks. But I feel better when I do, when I have that time away from Facebook and email yeah. and everything else. And I go and walk in the Vermont Hills here, you know, and I think going on something like your experience was like, yeah, you can't use your phone for seven days. You know, if that puts people off, then they're not the right kind of person or they're not in the right mindset to yeah. come on, on an experience like that. But I think that's part of the uh, the attraction. It would be for me to go, wow, I'm not going to be on my phone for a week. I need that. It's hard. You enjoy the experience more and it's, uh, I think there needs to be more of it. 
you know, as Peter said earlier on, you've created something that's unique. So you have the challenge of coming up with, with pricing the tours. And you can't just go and look at someone else and say, they're offering that, we'll offer this. How did you go about pricing up your, your, your expeditions? Yeah, that's, uh, that's a good one as well. So, you know, there's, there's some companies out there doing similar trips, but they won't have the, the experience or the historian there or, or someone behind it to give it substance. Yeah, all these guys who are delivering it are mega experienced guys, but it's that kind of unique selling point. So, um, and also having, you know, you know, endurance athlete, a world endurance athlete, no one's been around the world twice in a bike, you know, so that endurance part that Mark Bowman, he's, Mark's actually coming to Norway. So, you know, to get Mark out for a day isn't it cheap. So, you know, to bring these people on board who want to go, actually, I want to experience all that. Plus, I bet you Mark's got some good stories and he has, he's got a lot of good stories. Uh, and so you get to that, you know that piece as well and sharing in those memories uh, and learning about his experiences and you normally find when you're in an environment like that people's energy experiences rub off on you and you come away going do you know what I'll... and it's, sometimes it can be life-changing and it sends you off to to do something bigger and better uh, so and again when you're working in those and it took me a long time to get it it's knowing your worth and knowing your product and, and knowing right do you know what this is what we're worth so this is what we're going to sell it at and the reason you're going to get the reason you're charging that price is because you're going to get an awesome product, and no one else is doing it. So, uh, yeah, hope that answers your question. <laughs> it's it's a challenge for for everyone creating unique experiences. One of the biggest questions I get here at Tourpreneur is how do I price my tours? Because you know no one's handing you a book on it. Well, I've only been doing this for like eight years now, uh, and I'm still learning, but. I, I think you really got to believe in yourself, believe in your product. And, you know, if you're the only one doing it, like Pete said, there's thousands of people out there doing, you know, running the mill stuff. And it's, uh, mm-hmm. it's really good stuff. But if you're you not know, one guy that's doing it different, then obviously you need to put a premium on that. So I think, yeah, I don't see a problem with that. It's not- yeah. As you know, Shane, from speaking to all the operators, you we're all guilty. I'm guilty of this. Uh, we're all guilty of underpricing the value of what we do. And whether you're running a food tour, a walking tour, or again, an activity outfit, or a multi-day expedition business, we're all guilty of underpricing what we do because we tend to, because of the digital world, we just go online, look at the price of everything, and think, oh, I must price at that point. And Matt didn't have the chance to do that because there wasn't much out there. It was the same way what he was doing. So he had to actually go through the thought process of this is the product, this is the value, this is what we're bringing to the value. What is that worth? So when you take it from that point of view, you come up with a, a more accurate price. Whereas I can, as you know, thousands of operators have just compared to what's on the market and then come up with the same price of 10% below or 10% above without actually thinking the value it's been delivered. But we all, when you look at the experiences the clients get from this industry with what they're doing and what they pay for it, compared with what they pay for other things in other industries, we're vastly undervaluing the business, vastly, all of us. And, and and I'm guilty. I sell stuff for 50 quid and 50 bucks, $50. And people rave about it for for years. And then it's a half-day tour, but it really makes a difference in them. And, and we're giving it away for 50 bucks. We're all guilty of it. So it, Matt's gone through the right process. This is a unique product. He knows who his customer persona is. He knows who he's targeting, the type of customer he's doing. And he knows the sort of spending budget that that customer's got. And then you price you price your product to that. And obviously, you have to deliver the value. The last thing you can do is take the product out, deliver it, and the customer doesn't think they had fair value. Yeah. And we, we have delivered some in the past. Well, we've delivered lots in the past. And uh, we will say to the client at the end, what, what do you think that was worth? And some of them say you need to put it up. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's... And some are like, oh, you're on the money. And that's great. So it's finding that balance because, you know, everyone's circumstances are different. But I think you, you've got to hit the nail on the head with getting that right and the, the right amount of value because that's ultimately what the, the client wants. They want value for money. So, um, yeah. There's data out there and research for Hope Brighter and me for universities and stuff around pricing. But if we go back to day tours, uh, there's about normally, when you look at the data, there's normally about a 13 to 17% swing that you can manipulate your pricing. If you're, this is if you're in a competitive market where there are like-priced products on similar platforms. 
there's normally between 13 and 17% you can manipulate in there. And then if you split test it and measure it and all the rest of it, you will make a slight drop off of bookings. But then when you crunch the numbers, you're making more profit. If you've, if you've gone up higher, that's 13 to 17%. You, the drop off of bookings are minimal, uh, but you obviously it drops through significantly more profit. And that's obviously I've taken all things as even that your reviews are good, your reputation's good, the product's good, et cetera, et cetera. There is room for all of us uh, to, to manipulate pricing up a bit, but I totally understand, having spoke to hundreds of operators over the last couple of months in COVID, that so many of them just focus on the operator who's doing the same tour as them next door, and they complain about one or two pounds difference or one or two dollars difference, which I don't just get, I just don't get that. Did you know every weekday Shane curates the most interesting news articles in tours and activities and sends them out in a snappy daily digest? Grab your copy of the Tourpreneur Daily Briefing at www.tourpreneur.com. So I, I notice on the website there's no pricing. It's contact us, which which I get because it's a high-ticket item. But have you felt that maybe you should put the pricing on there? Because how do you repel people who... You know, who'll be who'll be surprised by the cost? You know, we want somebody that's going to make a bit of an effort to actually inquire, and you know, and they're sincere about it. Then, and you know, and it's they're all they're not that way off the mark, really. Do you know, I mean, for what you're getting, they're you know pretty reasonably priced. I mean, they're all inclusive. You know, a week to ten day trips. Um, so, you know, okay, the heroes of telemark's a bit more punchy because it's a ten day and there's a lot of safety cover required on that. The hard dagger be there can be well, brutal uh, in February, and it's an, a lot of these dates are anniversary dates as well, which is which is quite hard to get because they're they're busy times, you know. So you know what we are now, it's like okay, seventy. So there's a lot of 80th anniversaries coming up for these ops, so there's going to be a lot of interest. People go, and what what you find is with these trips, you, people come together who are like, oh my, my granddad was on that op, but we didn't find out until after the war or something, and then it, there's pieces of the story start getting brought together it makes it interesting so to answer your question i probably will put the price on later on but because it's such a new baby we're just kind of still firming it up and getting it right and then we'll, yeah i mean to be honest you just send us an email and we'll send you it. it's not any great hardship you know customer today because they've not got the financial wherewithal at the moment is if i still want them inquiries even if they can't afford it because they can become a customer three four five years down the line I regularly get expedition customers who have been following their stuff for five, six years. And and then they're just in the position time-wise, money-wise, it's just the right time. Whereas for the other four or five years, it wasn't the right time. So never undervalue any potential customer because things in life change. And let's look at it the other way around. I, I was always pre-COVID thinking, right, this customer can't afford what we're doing at the moment, but I'm going to stay in contact, et cetera, because they can hopefully in life progress to one of my expeditions now with covid i'm actually doing the opposite and we've stopped doing 10 week expeditions <laughs> because not many people are going to take 10 weeks out in this this climate and i'm designing cheaper expeditions that are only one week long we've never done one week expedition but we're designing one week ones fit with the the marketplace as we see it at the moment so we're actually going down market price wise and obviously removing a lot of value because you've got rid of nine weeks in many cases <laughs> but you have to always be doing what the market needs and can do not what you necessarily want to do in this particular time of rapid changing and hopefully we all get back to being able to do exactly what we want to do but at the moment the market is giving us strong signals of what they're willing to do and what they're not willing to do Peter, with with your vast experience, what social media channel do you think would be best for Matt's business? A LinkedIn for a certain type of customer and group or access to one potential customer that then le- leads to filling the whole expedition because that could be an, a corporate director, a managing director, CEO, etc. So LinkedIn for sure with the chance of filling that trip just with one group. Facebook would work tremendously well for individuals and couples, twos, but probably not going to hit the the guy that is then going to come along with, with eight people and fill, fill the trip or whatever. So both of them, two work hand in hand if you just understand that it's not always different people because you've got so many people have got a Facebook profile and a LinkedIn profile, but they operate 
on these platforms differently. Therefore, both of them two platforms, you can fill expeditions for. At any, I found it much easier to fill expensive trips on Facebook and things costing 10K plus, 15K, than I do selling a 50 quid trip. It's much easier to sell more expensive stuff than it is cheaper stuff. Uh, it's just the nature of the, the way the, the thing works. So both of them platforms, I would see as, as roots to, to this. You've got to mind, this is story-based, based on fact and history. Therefore, again, it's a story. Anything that was a story gathers interest. Uh, and if it's factual stories, <laughs> real live and this happens stories, people are going to watch that stuff. You've got the right media up for them on the social networks. They're going to watch it. They're going to get engaged by it if, that, if they've got that bent. And then it's a pretty easy to convert them once they've got the general interest. What's your thoughts on Instagram? I know it's a younger demographic, but just thinking of the visuals of it. The, the visuals work. I've never nailed Instagram because of, I mean, we have something like 50,000 followers on it, but I've still never nailed it uh, because we just haven't got the resources. And we certainly haven't got the resources at the moment. I've always took the view with all these social channels, find one or two that works for you. And we operate across them all, but we use Instagram and Twitter and stuff for a, an awareness channel not necessarily a commerce channel because I haven't had the time to nail them from commerce. So we use them as awareness, but we use the ones that we really understand from a commerce perspective. I can turn customers into from LinkedIn and Facebook into money, whereas I haven't gone through the process of learning that. On a, I've always treated all social media for the last 15 years exactly the same. Build an audience, don't expect nothing. Build an audience, don't expect nothing. At some point, once you have an audience, go and learn about that audience, go and learn about the customer, and then figure out how you're going to make money from it. But that process where you go and learn is quite time-consuming in the, in the extreme, uh, and I just haven't got room to learning. I know other people are doing brilliant on Instagram, so a product like this, theoretically, should. I just don't know how to do it because I haven't got my arse in gear to go and figure out Instagram in detail. Yeah, I keep hearing good things about Instagram stories. I'm on there, but I don't really get it. I haven't really invested the time. And that's why I wonder if maybe the demographic isn't on there for this kind of uh, experience. Yeah, I'm keen to go down that road and, and delve into it a bit deeper. I, I mean, like I said, we're on there and, you know, we've only putting on just a couple of exped just now because that's the most recent. And we don't want to go too much old old hat. Um, LinkedIn, you know, the guy's jumped on there and says, send us a date, so I'm going to fill it. I'm going to fill it with a group. You're like, great. Uh, but our numbers aren't, you know, you're looking between maximum 8, 12, 12 people. So, you know, they're very small, kind of exclusive groups. But, um, yeah, Instagram's a, Facebook's obviously great, but Instagram's one of those ones that I think people just like visuals. I'm a visual person as well. I just like to see something and if I like it, follow it a bit more and then hopefully go down the rabbit hole a wee bit more and hopefully book. I've started using Instagram more because you're right. It's just photographs. It's not people are writing crap or politics <laughs> or whatever. Are right? you just looking at pictures? Yeah, exactly. It's easy. You know? yeah. Well, all these things, though, it's, again, there's, there's no rocket science behind all this. You just need an audience. You have to build an audience, and you can't be in a rush. It's a long journey. And, and so many people are – because we've been trained in a certain way, Google, we can have you go – if you get your SEO right, you get clicks and you get bookings, you do PPC. PPC leads to bookings very quickly. You spend some money, you get bookings. Uh, whereas social isn't the same. Social's a long, long journey, and, and it's it's a different way you communicate. Uh, people are on social are there to be social, not to be sold to. So it's a much longer <laughs> thing, but that's not to underestimate it. No. It is incredibly powerful once you, at the moment, coming out of COVID, our social inquiries and bookings are far outstripping our Google inquiries and bookings. Now, pre-COVID, it was the other way around. Google was always a dominant. Mm. Social was climbing, but Google was dominant. In this world at the moment, we are getting much more success on social than we are Google because the search volume hasn't returned to Google in the same volume it was pre-COVID. But people haven't stopped becoming social because of COVID. They've become more social online. They're spending more time on Facebook, more time on other social. So it's easier to reach them on there at the moment than it is to go via Google. Yeah. Well, I'd love to chat with you in a year or so's time, Matt, and find out what was successful for you. Yeah, I mean, it's. I was just chatting to Pete there before this. It was like, oh, no, I've maybe bit off a bit more I can chew because there's so, there's so many of them. The more I research it, uh, in the moment I've got about 12. And uh, you know, I've only advertised four 
And but these are really punchy exped that you can be done twice a year. So straight away I'm up into twenty twenty exped. Like so that is these are like specific either SOE or special forces. But one that I one that I've got on there which isn't SOE or special forces well he is he's, he's the godfather, the forefather of all of it was Lawrence of Arabia, who mm-hmm. ended up developing the long range desert group where, you know, he ended up helping the special forces in North Africa and he was a real pioneer of it all and I think Wow, that'd be cool. So I've already looked into that. Pete, I, do you, I think you do Jordan already, do you not? Have you do a trip to Jordan? Yeah. Previous disaster I set up a I was in the process <laughs> of setting up a business in Jordan. Okay. Uh, just as the Syrian war kicked off. Oh, right. <laughs> right. So we, we had to do one. we had to do a rapid <laughs> a rapid extraction from there. Right. All the flight all the cheap flights we're relying on to get customers coming in suddenly pulled out. Uh, so Wrong place, wrong time. But yeah, Jordan's yeah. stunning. And the a trip, expeditions in Jordan are brilliant. And the people are great. Uh, absolutely fantastic. It's right, right location to do it. Uh, well, that that mean, would even, be a great trip. Launch of labor would be a great trip. Oh, yeah. I mean, again, there's you know, there's, there's folk doing it, but it's like, you know, I've got ideas of making it a bit more punchy. And even uh, like Libya, not Libya's a no-go area, but I've had people get in touch like, listen, we have consultancy agency in Libya, we'll get you to Libya to, to do the stuff, you know, the Egypt kind of long-range desert group stuff, and I'm thinking, wow, that's amazing. But, and then there's, and then there's that element of kind of like punchiness to it. It's a wee bit, ooh, a bit risky, but, you know, a lot of those um, World War II long-range desert group missions, they, they were right right out in the borders, right in the sticks and in, in, the, um, in the desert. So some, some I was thinking if you could re- recreate that with the actual old jeeps, the old pinky jeeps and stuff like that they done, that would be a proper, proper special <laughs> exped. Um, yeah, maybe that's for later. Let's get the let's get we got foundation strong first before we start heading off into the desert and jeeps. It does raise an interesting question though. How do you deal with insurance and liability on on your experiences? Yeah, I mean for Europe, it's all right. I mean. You know, there's companies out there in insuring in Europe. When you start going into kind of North Africa, I'm saying Libya. I'm, we're not going to go there anytime soon because you know you're not allowed to. So, um, yeah, having your right public liability, having your instructors swept up and your guides. I mean, you know, looking into it more, just going up into the mountains, the Apennines in Italy. You need to, your guides need to be properly uh, ticketed with uh, the Italian, not just international mountain uh, leaders, but they need to have the, the Italian tickets. Uh, and so again, that kind of limits what guys you can use. So you know, I've got experience. I've got Herzberg Führer mountain guys who are ex-military special forces guys, but they necessarily wouldn't be qualified to run stuff over there. So it's about getting those ticks in the right box and just doing a bit of research. Um, uh, and yeah, a lot of the trips like we've got, there's a couple of good ones. Uh, Switzerland, the kind of Mount Blanc area. There's some cool stuff over there, and then you guys can finish off with a with a heli ski or some kind of high end. But again, you know you can't heli ski in France. You can only do it on the on the Swiss side or the you know Italian side. So it's, it's about finding out all these kind of stuff that's tripping you up, and just make sure you're bombproof before you you set off. But yeah, yeah safety's massive. Safety's massive, Shane. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The insurance so, on so me... insurance on multi day, Shane. Is there's two, uh, you you double bag it. You have to have your own business insurance. And to be honest, in Europe, it's pretty easy to get. Uh, certainly, our insurance covers every country in the world, with the exception of the US of A. I can't take clients to the US of A. I just can't get insurance. That is economical to take clients on the, a trip in the USA. But everywhere else, it doesn't matter where it is. I can take people into Iran, take people into Iraq, Afghanistan. Insurance is pretty easy to get that. But it's always worth double bagging off your own corporate insurance. And then not just worth, we insist on it. Every single client has to take out their own not mm-hmm. travel insurance, but rescue insurance. And there's a distinct difference. Travel mm-hmm. insurance is fairly cheap, although the prices have gone up substantially since COVID. Rescue insurance is higher priced, and it always will be. But normally, depending on the trip, but nine times out of ten, we'll insist on rescue insurance uh, before we take any money off the client. They have to prove. And we're, we're not allowed to actually tell them who to insure with. A bit strange, but there you go. We can give them a range of companies to insure with, and then they can insure with one of them. And as long as we get a policy, then we're happy to take a client. But you need to double bag this stuff because the insurance, mm-hmm. as we've all found during this period, it's a minefield, absolute minefield. And it's only when it gets called into action do you find out how much of a minefield it is. 
Yeah, there's one that tripped me up, not not in my the current business, but it was in the military, and we were going up to Cal. In fact, we we're going up all three of the highest peaks in Morocco, and uh, I had a military medic with me, and I had a sat phone, and uh, we done the risk assessment, and then my commanding officer went, "So what happens if your sat sat phone breaks?" He goes, oh, "Sorry, I've got my medic." Because what happens if you lose your medic? I was like, I'm not, I'm not going to lose my medic. I'm not going to lose my medic. Well, well, just come up with a plan in case. You... So we had the Moroccan army with us, and they had a medic. So sure enough, uh, we, we get the green light, and we go to Morocco, and my medic, he uh, he, he steps on some glass and cuts his feet, and he gets septicemia, blood poisoning, and he's got this mountain, and he's man down, and he's like, oh. We had to get him Kazi backed off. So it was actually the Moroccan medic who patched him up and then we had to bring the Moroccan army to get him extracted and, and what have. And it just shows you, you know, you can plan for every eventuality, but if you've not got stuff in place, then you can get caught out. So that was a, that was a good learning curve. Always have backup for backups. You really know that anyway, Pete. Yeah, yeah. Although, again, in some ways, I mean, this is just me being old and grumpy. Things have just become so safe now. And you have to do this, this, the real... Years ago, when I started doing expeditions in the 80s, I was still in the military at that time, but when we got time off, and we used to get lots of time off then, you just turn up and go on an expedition and do it, you know, whether it was Nepal or wherever. <laughs> and you, can, you didn't worry about communications or trap phones, you just went and done it. And there's yeah. something really enjoyable about just buggering off and doing stuff without worrying about all this stuff. But obviously, if you're taking paying guests, you can't do that, and you have to yeah. go through so many hoops these days. Uh, Correctly, it's the guest safety it's at, at, at heart, but I, I do feel that whole stuff is taking something away from it, and things are becoming super safe that they then become like attractions or become like like managed experiences. And, and when we get on to that, it's a bugbear in mind. What is an expedition? I hate the word expedition, not because I don't like expeditions. It's because everybody treats that word in a certain different way. And the travel industry is terrible for it. So if you look how many people are selling expeditions, there's literally thousands. But they range from luxury small cruises where you're on five-star kind of top-end chef service with waiters to one of Mark's in the snow, can howling winds at 100 mile an hour and frostbite or me trips and people a thousand, thousand miles across a desert. And expedition word gets used for a lot of things and it fools people. Because I get people inquiring for hours and they say, oh, I've been on X expeditions. And I say, well, tell me the expeditions you've been on. They haven't been on expeditions. They've been on adventure holidays. And adventure holidays are very different from expeditions. Adventure holidays are repeated time and time again, often week in, week out. So it's just a system. It's an itinerary thing. People ask for my itinerary in expedition. I say, you're not getting an itinerary. We don't do itineraries. We start there. And if we all survive, we finish it at the other end and we make it up as we go along. And, and they think you're daft, but if they want an experience, that's what you're going to get. If I give them an itinerary, I've just took away half the experience. And then they're going to come back and hold the itinerary up and say, we didn't do this on the itinerary. Yeah. It's, so it's, the word expedition is overused in so many long, wrong contexts that it makes for operators who are doing expeditions, uh, it makes it difficult to understand what your client thinks it is therefore you have to ask that question what do you think an expedition is so just to piggyback on that so when i see soe expeditions because i've read up a bit in the history i know this is not going to be a walk in the park right so i think we have that for it but let's say matt so you know in the other room here i've probably got 500 plus books on spy history military history i do a lot of war gaming on on board games right so i, I love all that so I, I see your website and I think, oh, this is this for me? And let's say I email you. What kind of questions would you ask of me to make sure I'm a good fit for your expeditions? So the, the endurance part is is a big part of it because I want to know you're going to get around there safe. So it's a bit like Pete's Thousand Miles uh, journeys. But we've had people in, from all walks of life and all backgrounds and all age groups come on this. But, you know, there's got to be an element of, you know, drive there and, and you know, gumption from you to succeed and want to do it and I, I just want I'd want to know that you I was going to use a wrong terminology that you're going to wrap if it got a wee bit cold and you're a wee bit wet and you're a wee bit hungry and you just kind of wrap so and it's hard to get that from somebody from an email she would probably want to phone you up and speak to you depending on how punchy it was and just get your experience because you can ask someone's experience and you kind of got a rough idea if they're capable of doing something or not uh, in terms of endurance how would you judge that 
Yeah, so, you know, this might sound really silly, but just going for some, like, a 10k run or a six-mile run, so if you couldn't get around, like, a couple of miles running, you know, just keeping your heart rate at a regular pace, or ultimately, it's, it boils down to safety, so, you know, but before all trips, there'll be a short training phase, and if you're if you're unsafe, then we can't take you on the hill, it's, it's basics, so... um a rough idea of your fitness and your experience and what you've done in the past is is normally a, a good insight. My attitude to endurance changed as I got older, uh, probably because I couldn't keep doing it as much. <laughs> but when I was younger and doing all the endurance stuff and, and, and ultra marathons and all that nonsense that I used to get involved in, I had this picture in my mind that was getting really fit, supreme people uh, that could do this stuff. And I, at the time, I was extremely fit myself. And I didn't really think people who weren't in that condition could do endurance events, but I have been proved completely wrong. Uh, since we started doing the long expeditions, we've took a punt on several clients after we do video interviews with everybody uh, pre-signing them up. I always was a strong believer in mental endurance more than physical endurance, but I thought you needed to have a, a pretty strong physical backup as well. And I've been proved wrong on that. If you've got the right mental endurance and you really want to get something done, it will happen. And I've seen the other opposite. I've took athletes on some of our trips and they haven't completed them. And yeah, these are people yeah. kind of rubbing, are running two and a half hour marathons or running ultra marathons and, and they haven't completed. And I've had a 65-year-old guy who, although I gave him a training program, he went to the pub and drank and then turned up two freestone overweight, and he was a Yorkshire stubborn pain in the arse. Uh, and that's exactly the quality you needed, stubborn pain in the arse. And he finished <laughs> a thousand miles wow. on foot across the Gobi Desert and because he was stubborn. Yeah, likewise. Sorry, Pete, to interrupt there, mate. Um, you know, we, I've had guys in their 70s, late 70s, come on it and, and do it. And all right, they're a wee bit slower, but they'll get round. And, you, you know, you know they're safe. And then I've had military guys who I thought, yeah, they'll be all over it. And, you know, they maybe didn't have the right kit or whatever. And you're like, I, you know, some, that was a learning curve for me. I too, oh, he's a, a senior guy in the military. I, I'll take it for granted he knows what to bring. And, and, and you're like, seriously, that's really embarrassing. So, kind of, it swings around about. So, we're just kind of, yeah, you got to be bomb-proof and everyone's gets a kind of level uh, playing field. The hard thing with that, Shane, is, and I've found this hard, we're interviewing the clients, a lot of guests don't actually know their mental endurance. They have a good idea about their physical endurance. They have a pretty good idea about their physical endurance, whether it's poor, whether it's medium, whether it's, it's good. Uh, but they don't really know their mental endurance because they haven't been put in a position that tests their mental endurance. Even the athletes, even the ultra things, their mental endurance has been trained because they've been training for years physically. And what happens with your brain then is it, it just adapts. It, it, Every day it gets a bit tougher on your training, it just adapts. So you've grown your mental endurance in that thing, but they become very regimented that the circumstances have to be right. When you take them out of that and throw them in a whole pile of nonsense, uh, they get thrown out of that. So not many people understand the mental endurance because they've not been in a position to test it. Uh, and that is interesting to me to try and figure that out in, in individuals. Yeah, and I ask it because you think of the customer's journey, and I when I, I I wish I could remember how I came across your site now, Matt. I don't know if you shared it, Pete, or, or I read about it I'll, somewhere. I put it on LinkedIn, I think, and you, uh, I made a video. Ah, I made a wee video on like put it on LinkedIn. That was it. See, LinkedIn working there it got me uh, hooked in. <laughs> um, but you know, I looked at the website, I'm like this is great, but. I'm just like, yeah, I'd never be able to do that because I've, I've run half marathons and trained for all that, but I've never tested my mental endurance. I don't know how I would cope out in the cold or starving hungry. And I guess that's the question in my mind. But then there's the other part, like, oh, I wouldn't mind testing myself. you got to do it, man. Come and do it. Come and do it. <laughs> You're talking to a guy who gets scared because there's a bear running around our Mate. garden. Or if I see a garden snake, I'm in bits, you know, but... Uh... <laughs> Listen, there's one thing in life, there's one thing for certain, and that's you're going to check out. So. Let's have no regrets and let's have good experiences. You know, good and bad. It's you know, it's what you take away. No one ever regrets doing stuff that's tough. People regret living their life crap, and because they get to the end of their life and it's it's just been okay. Well, I've got news for them. It's the only one they bloody got. And eight billion years before they were born, they were nothing. And eight billion years after them, they were nothing. So if they get to seventy year old and they've done shit, well, that's their fault. So 
as a tour operator selling this stuff, we have to be conscious of what you just said, Jane. You looked at it and you're inspired by it, but you thought you wouldn't be able to do it. Now, that's a failing yeah. by us by not understanding that customer persona. And we have to somehow get that message across that this isn't for heroes. This isn't for, and this is for everybody. If you have a bit of endurance and a bit of mental resilience and, and you want to experience something different. And that is, um, that's something I think about a lot when I'm communicating and when I'm trying to get marketing across is who is this customer? And what you said yeah. is the response from the vast majority of people. If I go back to what we were talking about at the beginning of this, the desire is still there. So the desire is huge, but then they think, mm, but I'm, I'm not really up, can, capable of doing this. And that, that is an issue. It's an issue for them because we need to get them over that I'm not capable of doing this. Because I tell you, once somebody does something unusual in their life, nothing is difficult afterwards. Nothing. Mm. I'm scared of heights. I'm terrified of heights. Yeah, I jumped out of a plane when I was 18 years old. Nothing's ever been difficult since. And, wow. and, and I'm still scared of heights now. I climb mountains and can hang off rock faces and stuff. Uh, but the minute I knew I could conquer fear by jumping out of a plane, Nothing has been difficult since because it's just, yeah. a, it's just a mindset. It's a challenge. So if you get people to do something like this and they are concerned about it, once they do it, life becomes easier because you think, well, if I can do that, I can, I can do anything. And I think that copy, you're right. It's how do you put that on the website? And I think once you start getting the reviews coming in, Matthew, you know, asking people, particularly someone who's like myself, who, you know, thought they couldn't do it and getting them to, you know, write that in their testimonial. So I would then see that and go, oh, well, that person yeah. is also scared of heights or no, 100%. not a percent swimmer. And because it's so new, you know, that will come with time. I mean, I've, yeah. I can pull on previous stuff and get some testimonies on there. Uh, but no, that's a good point. That's good to know, Shane. Um, what what trippers you want to come on, mate? Out of interest, well, I'll sort of you. Well, probably Crete. Crete, Crete looks fun. Crete, all right, cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah but I, I told Sunday, you, Crete was the one. Crete's the one. <laughs> <laughs> only, only because I lived in Scandinavia for three years, yeah. and I live in Vermont, where there's nine months of snow. Yeah. So I'd rather go somewhere that's a bit warmer. I, like, I could give yeah. you, a, I could give you an hour's podcast on shepherds in Crete and how how <laughs> their oh. how their diet and what they eat made them supreme athletes. Oh, wow. That's yes. how boring I am. Well, that's the sort of stuff I read. How boring is that? Learning mm. about diets of shepherds in Crete. We'll have to save that one for a beer at an event, hopefully in the, well, whenever that will be. We're not <laughs> mm. too far away, Peter. Hopefully Crete. <laughs> yeah, let's do it. Yeah, no, I'd be up for it. I've got, I've got a feeling, Shane, I'm going to be uh, doing trips like Going across Crete and climbing mountains of that long before I'm at another before I'm at a big event with a thousand people in a in a hall. Sad but true. I think for the next year we're going to be outside more than we're inside. Just to um, just to go back quickly, what you you spoke about earlier, guys. You said about you know um, how do you know that mental part? Uh, you know it ties in nicely with SOE because a lot of these people were bankers and joiners and you know mechanics and they had that. They didn't know until they went. They didn't know until they actually went on the training. They they were probably deselecting themselves, but it was the instructors that were saying, "No, you're you're actually better than what you think. You're, you don't know if good." And then they were like, "All right," and then they believed in themselves, and then they kind of they pushed on through. Because even in that program, you, I was like, "He's definitely going to get through," and then he didn't. The arrogant one, right? The arrogant yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's like, "He's definitely getting through." But the one who was the best was like the grandmother, right? Yeah. Remember the, the older yeah. woman? And again, like you were saying, Peter, you wouldn't think of her as being, you know, an SOE agent. And there was that scene where she couldn't get in the water to swim the lock when right, yeah. she did it, yeah. which was powerful. People were put in the position that's unusual and it brings out things that they don't know is in them. You'd be amazed. But go back to the year Jordan one, Lawrence Arabia. Lawrence Arabia didn't start off to... Who he, who he ended up being wasn't who he was at the start. He was a disaster at the start. Nobody would give him the time of day. And he was he was just not respected at all at the beginning of that journey. It was only when he disappeared in the desert and then did what he did and come back out that he was launched to the level he, he is in history now. So it's you just never know what's hiding in some people. They just sometimes need to be put in a position that brings that out of them. And the reality in normal life, most people are never put in that position, so it never comes out. Matt, thank you for giving us an hour of your time today. I know you're busy. Pete, I know you're exceptionally busy. Um, really appreciate you sharing some wisdom with us. I hope to invite you. Uh, maybe we'll do an in-person interview <laughs> next year, Matt, after we've done Crete. Yeah, you've killed me. Let's do it, mate. No, it's been great, mate. I've loved it. Pete, it's been great seeing you again, mate. 
Yeah, good to be catch up. Thanks for listening to the Torpreneur podcast. Be sure to visit torpreneur.com to join the conversation and access the show notes, including links to the resources mentioned on today's episode. This is Torpreneur.